Good afternoon and welcome. My name is Nick Davies and I'm a Programme Director at the Institute of Government. Thank you very much for joining us for this event, Public Services After the Pandemic, How to Scale Up Successful Changes, which has been kindly supported by Social Finance. Last year has seen unprecedented disruption to public services, from court hearings to GP appointments, education to social care, and every service in between. The pandemic has had a profound impact. Yet we've also seen years of innovation take place in a matter of months, with important lessons for how public services can be delivered during the crisis and beyond. Many of the most promising changes have been developed locally and by frontline staff. What can central government do to embed, support and successfully scale up these new approaches in public service delivery? What tools does Whitehall need to facilitate transformational change across the public sector? And how can the public sector collaborate with other sectors to achieve a shared goal? What role can recent changes play in the recovery from the pandemic? What lessons can be learned from the way changes have been introduced in response to the pandemic? Thus, these issues and more, I'm delighted to be joined by four fantastic speakers. First up will be Chris Clements, Director of at Social Finance. Second will be Lord Victor Adebowale, Chair of the NHS Confederation. Third will be Dr Henry Kippen, Director of Economic Growth at North of Tyne Combined Authority. And fourth will be Kirsty McNeil, Executive Director of Policy, Advocacy and Campaigns at Safe Children. Following the opening remarks, I will ask a few follow-up questions before taking questions from the audience. If you have a question for any of our panellists, please submit them using the Q&A function. You can submit them while we're speaking and I'll try to ask as many of them as possible. I'd also like to encourage you to tweet using hashtag IFG Public Services. Right, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Chris Clements, our first panellist. Over to you, Chris. Thanks, Nick. Uh, good afternoon, all. Um, so social finance helps bring together government, the voluntary sector and the financial community to find better ways of tackling social problems. Uh, it's not unusual for people to ask us to help scaling something. Um, so the first question I always ask them is why? Um, and people sometimes talk about wanting to replicate or put more investment into something that's working or perhaps enabling a successful uh, organisation to grow. Um, the focus of my work on scaling in social finance is always on how do you scale impact rather than a venture for its own sake. Uh, in my experience, uh, scaling and sustaining impact is rarely achieved by growing a single intervention or organisation. Um, this means you need to start with a slightly different perspective um, and take a wider view when approaching scaling. Uh, but what do I mean by that? Well, um, well, Social Finance has just published a new report, uh, Building Routes to Scale, that seeks to explain. Uh, it's based on an inquiry led by my colleague, uh, Emily Bolton, over a period of about 18 months or so, examining examples of successful uh, impact at scale and how they got there, uh, but also drawing on some of the work um, from social finance over the past 10 years. Uh, it provides a framework as a practical tool in helping to identify the big but plausible shifts required to scale impact. Uh, it's available now on our website. Uh, do go and check it out, uh, socialfinance.org.uk. Um, but the starting point in our framework when thinking about scaling is actually the end point. See, we exist, I guess, to, to make change in people's lives, lasting change in people's lives. So we don't start with a successful intervention, rather we seek to deeply understand what lasting change would actually look like for those affected by an issue, and also society around a social issue, recognising that there may be some tensions there. And we focus on identifying what the building blocks would need to be in place that means something has shifted for them, uh, and that change will be held in place. 
and through our work and our inquiry, we've found that the practice of scaling and sustaining impact typically means putting in place building blocks to achieve a combination of three things. Uh, services and practices have expanded their reach, uh, systems have embedded change, and society and culture have shifted their perspective. So the first of those, uh, services and practices expanding their reach, that would typically have building blocks of either widespread delivery of new solutions beyond any one organisation, or adoption of new ways of working, say by a critical mass of existing actors. Uh, the second of those systems that embed change, uh, in that the building blocks we identify are typically new and change funding flows becoming business as usual, or uh, new established accountability mechanisms, or perhaps a shift in the policy or the legislative environment. Uh, and the third of those things, society and culture have shifted their perspective, typically means there are new public conversations happening. So for us, understanding which building blocks you're aiming for is a vital first step when thinking about scaling. Now, I know that sounds obvious. Um, but when we, when we, well, often we see people um, starting from the other end, launching into a particular strategy to scale, or they're only viewing scaling within their own organisational bubble, sometimes leading to side of practice or, or change not persisting. Um, it, it's also important to recognise that it's very likely you're going to need to put in place multiple building blocks when scaling, and that will therefore need multiple strategies for scaling. So in the framework I referred to, we, we've identified 18 different kind of scale strategies that have been successful through our research, and each of those contributes to different of the building blocks. Now, I'm not going to go into all of those 18 strategies here, we haven't got time, um, but they go beyond, I guess, just the classic levers of government to say funding or regulation. Uh, and we identify things including uh, identifying and, and developing talent, uh, the use of data to drive transparency, the use of evidence or perhaps supply side interventions to enable the market. Uh, and I guess when thinking about those strategies, it, it's important to, to note that we don't say there's there's one recipe you can you can apply to think about scaling. What works will always depend on the wider context, its opportunities, its barriers that are there and which building blocks you're ultimately trying to build. However, I would just um, briefly offer um, three things that we think are, are vital as foundations that underpin nearly all scale strategies. Um, they are scaling needs strong partnerships, consistent funding and a clear story. So scaling needs strong partnerships. Um, well, change is a collective effort in our view uh, and different strategies are going to need to draw on the expertise and influence of different parts of the system, be those policymakers, communities, sector experts, frontline workers. So it needs an open mindset when you're going into scaling. Secondly, scaling needs consistent funding. Our review of successful approaches to scale show that nearly all have relied on deliberate strategic investment over many years. Change is not a short term activity. Uh, included in, the, in that is, is the process of building partnerships and not just the doings. Investing in those partnerships really matters beyond just investing in the thing you, 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 you care about. And thirdly, scaling needs a clear story. Narrative unites. It brings people together and explaining the why and the how uh, is as important as explaining the what you want to do if you're going to bring people on that journey with you. Which brings me back to where I started. We use this framework I'm referring to as a practical tool. We use it to try and help get clarity on what you're building and how it will help the people affected. We then encourage people to think beyond their organisational position and we encourage people to understand and pursue strategies to scale impact rather than just scaling the thing they start with. That's how we view scaling and I hope that's helpful to start us off today. Thank you very much, Chris. I'm going to ha now hand over to our next speaker, Lord Victor Adewale. Uh, you're currently on mute. It's the phrase of the age. Um, OK, well, um, thank you for inviting me to contribute to this conversation. Um, 
interesting report uh, uh, from Social Finance. I've uh, sort of speed read it. I guess the 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 three things. Well, the the things that I'm going to say about uh, how we get scale up in in um, post COVID. It's a bit like that Chinese problem. It's too early to say, isn't it? I mean, what's going to happen? We've got we've got a number of green shoots. A number of things have changed. What I don't see, though, is necessarily a, a narrative that says what I hear is let's get back to normal, not what is the new normal. And as a general discourse, I worry about that. But I guess what I've learned from my from my uh, sort of journey through COVID to where we are now are the following things. Um, we should let local leaders lead. Um, COVID has, has really taught us that local leaders are best placed to design, deliver and probably innovate um, solutions that work in local communities. The whole notion of well, what's happening in the white paper and in health and this notion of place has become very relevant. And in fact, if you look at where the mistakes have been made, it's when we've not included, not involved, not engaged, not listen to people at local level. So there's, there's something like this notion of um, of pushing lead, distributing leadership uh, as, as far down uh, or across the system as possible. Secondly, um, certainly and this is the case in health, uh, digital solutions have come to the fore. So in the last uh, 15 months, we've probably um, uh, taken on board, and I think somebody's done some research that shows this, about five or six years of digital innovation into the NHS. Now, not all that will last, and not all that should last, but the fact that we've now incorporated digital and video and, um, and data into a lot of health interactions that people experience is quite powerful. Um, the third thing is that inequalities and inequity, and the two are different, as you know, have become have come to the fore in virtually every aspect of public services. And I would argue that it's it's calling us to create a new vision for what public services or services to the public, as I prefer, can and should be doing to resolve the inequity and inequality gap, because it will um, undermine any attempt to uh, move on and it, in, in a sense defines the new normal. And I think um, uh, we need decisive government action and the, the pandemic has necessitated governments to make decisions quickly and when they haven't uh, and in an engaged way and when they haven't engaged local, they've tended to make decisions too slowly and in a way that's forced things down the tube onto um, into into places in a way that doesn't always work. And it's what it's highlighted is the dynamic between national, um, regional and local. Um, and I think the final thing I'd say is that and I'm, you know, I'm doing some work on, on the social on social investment, but I think it's highlighted the need for much easier access to fund innovation um, and get innovation uh, uh, going where it needs to happen. Um, it's too complicated to, to get finance. It's, it's too uh, there's needless competitions between places of need for things that all places in need need. If you see what I mean, it shouldn't be a competition. <laughs> make the, make the, make the resources available, expect them to innovate and support that innovation. Um, I think in your report it says that uh, impact and, and spread take anything between 35, is it 35 and 45 years. Um, I've got another stat for you that was produced by the government's innovation union, which says that. Um, 
generally it takes an innovation 17 years to get from the lab or whatever you, you define a lab as as business to business as usual i think the, the pandemic's taught us that that doesn't have to be the case and it need not to be if we're going to create a new normal which in my view is a must i'll stop there thank you very much i'm now going to move on to our third panelist henry kippen over to you henry Thank you, Nick, and, and thanks everybody. And good to be here. Although I have to say, I um, I did lobby hard to have a nice picture of the Time Bridge in the background, but it was overruled <laughs> by our colleagues at the Institute for Government. So that tells you everything you need to know about central local relationships, doesn't it? So, so my, my so if, if the exam question is, what can central government do to scale innovations at a local level and from combined authority areas? I would say three things that gently push back against the premise of the question. So the first bit of my answer would be don't. Second <laughs> bit would be think about what we mean about by scale. Economies of collaboration are just as important as economies of scale here um, uh, in this conversation. And then thirdly, I would push back on this all being about services and scaling service delivery. So let me just explain a little bit about what, what, what I mean. Um, in relation to the first point, I think obvious but needs restating. The whole point of devolution and working at a local and regional level is about finding a relationship between the economy and public services that fit for particular areas for a population. What works in Gateshead and North Tyneside might not work in Surrey and vice versa. And I think we're we're sort of well beyond the analysis that the bedpan dropped on a hospital floor should resonate in the corridors of Westminster as a one size fits all concept. That 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 I think is bust. If you read the Marmot Review of ten years ago. This, this last year post-COVID, you'll see the relationship between a kind of notion that you can take public services and scale up in a linear way everywhere. It's just bust, isn't it, in terms of its relationship to health inequalities and wider outcomes. And where, where I think Victor's right, where you've seen examples of very strong local and regional collaboration emerging, for example, around models of community testing through COVID, around protecting vulnerable people, you could argue that those have been somewhat undermined when we've tried to fit those into national systems which don't have the nuance to be able to work locally and on a population basis. So I think, you know, scale and learning and diffusing is not the same as productizing, and I think that's always worth restating. Secondly, economies of collaboration are just as important as those of scale. The big lesson for me has been just a phenomenal appreciation of the amount of collaboration that's gone on through COVID. So. That, that's been very tricky and fraught at times. And of course, crisis is very different to what it takes to recover. But if you look at the scale, say, let's take the work that went on to cope with those kind of lumpy and problematic supply chains for PPE in the early stages, you saw an incredible amount of collaboration across business, NHS, local government, fire, police, ranging from who's going to make this stuff right the way through to where's the midnight drop going to happen and who's going to get this stuff to the hospital. So you can learn a lot, I think, from the the leadership that is required in order to do that. Um, if you look across, you know, in our area, Collaborative Newcastle is a great example of where you've got initiatives that are cross healthcare and economy and led in that way. And therefore the relationship capital that that builds allows you to work differently through a crisis. Now that needs to be built on and not squeezed out by a kind of system that uh, uh, wants the same things to happen everywhere. So I think again, thinking about what enables collaboration and the capacity to build that is vital. And then, and then lastly, I wanted to make a point about services. Victor will recognise this because we've, we've worked on, on this area for a number of years together. 
if we start with services and thinking about how you scale up public service delivery, you miss a whole bunch of stuff yeah. that has to happen in the margins that affects people's lives quite profoundly. So my view is we're heading to a summer where the real cost in the economy is going to be shown. When the furlough cap comes off the economy, the effect of unemployment on young people is going to be a, a, a huge, huge political issue. If you're a young person leaving college, you need great intervention from the state. You need the resource to do that, but you also need an alarm clock a mobile phone, bunch of data on it, and a mate who's already got a job. And none of those things are traditionally public services. So actually, we need to be thinking about services too and with the public, as Victor's always said. For me, you can see that through COVID, whether it's um, firefighters working in a mortuary or whether it's uh, the state providing laptops to kids in families that can't afford them. These are different ways of thinking about services to the public, and we need to hold on to some of that. Um, that, that those for me would be the three profound outcomes. I don't think you can do that if you consistently strip capacity from local government and local public services. So, so capitalising local collaboration for me is the absolute key to how you take some of these lessons from COVID and, and make them work in the recovery environment, not pretending we can take great service, services and make them work in the same way everywhere. So I'll leave it there, Nick, but I'm really happy to be involved in the discussion afterwards. Thank you, Henry. I'm feel, feeling particularly guilty about the top-down requirement from the Institute for Government to, to have this background, given that our office is quite literally an ivory tower. Um, uh, well, it's outrageous. I wanted to wait for your cathedral. So I'm just going to move on now to our final speaker, Kirsty McNeil. Thanks, Nick. So I thought it would be helpful if I maybe worked through five things that I think we have learned over the course of this uh, pandemic from a charity perspective. And I might begin with my first one, actually, where Henry left off. For me, one of the really big lessons of this period is that public services play a much bigger and wider role in a family or an individual citizen's life than the thing they were theoretically set up to do and the thing they are labelled as being. So if we take the role of a school, so the stated purpose of a school is clearly to educate a child. And yet we've seen so deeply the role that schools play that's so much bigger than that as soon as they cease to be available. So the role that a school plays in a child's mental health, the role that school plays in allowing children to be with their friends and to develop their capacity to be in a community with one another and to navigate relationships, the role tragically that schools and other services aimed at children play in child protection. So as soon as those safeguarding and child protection touch points have been taken away, whether it's baby weighs-ins or at time at school, we've seen what happens to children who are at their most vulnerable and most marginalised. And crucially, of course, thanks to Marcus Rashford, we've seen the role of schools in providing food and nutrition, which is not something that if you'd asked anyone in the public two years ago, what's the primary role of a school? They wouldn't have said making sure that children don't go hungry. And yet it's only when this thing has been stripped away so fast from families that we've seen that public services at their best go far beyond their stated intention. So I think there's a question for all of us as we're redesigning public services about how we might allow them to be tailored to and live within the actual complexity of a family's life. Charities of course have picked up the slack for all those secondary benefits of public services as they've been taken away. It's charities that have stepped in to make sure child protection services still happen. It's charities that have stepped in with mental health support for parents and kids. It's charities that have stepped in with food but it really shouldn't have been like that. And that's not a sustainable solution. The only sustainable solution is, as I say, for us to recognise that public services go well beyond their stated purpose. So that would be my first reflection. 
the second, and I don't think we talk about or celebrate this enough as a country, the latent civic volunteering potential of our country is absolutely enormous. Millions and millions and millions of people want to take part and have a latent sense of their own agency in changing the places and the nations in which they live. However, that sense of civic potential is both enormous and incredibly fragile. So there's a few things I think it's worth reflecting upon about those millions of people who participated in mutual aid or who signed up to be an NHS volunteer. For that average new volunteer, two things worth remembering. The first is that that community doesn't self-describe as volunteers. They say, I do what anyone would have done, says David Robinson at the Relationships Project from his research. Secondly, they do not think this is a permanent status. So they don't say, I'm a neighbour, I'm a parent, I'm an employee and I'm a volunteer. This thing with a capital V at the start of it is simply not a status that they now believe themselves to have and imagine themselves having five or 10 years from now. If we play our cards right, of course they will and they'll be active participants in their places, in their local democracy and in local public services. But at the moment, that potential is very, very fragile and we're at risk of breaking it if we try to systematise it or formalise it too quickly. The third thing I think we've learned is that charities will innovate. So whether that is Save the Children immediately spinning up within a matter of weeks, an entirely new programme, our emergency grants programme, getting help with food out to families, help with data and devices, help with household items, help with early learning materials. We were able to spin that up. Likewise, the Holocaust Educational Trust, where I'm on the board, which traditionally takes children on visits to death camps at Auschwitz Bergenau, has suddenly been able to make that entire experience done through virtual reality. And has been able to do that both at home for families and in classrooms as children have gone back. Incredible innovation, but it takes both space and sustainable funding. So to go back to one of Chris's points, in both situations, those charities have been able to do that because we have the confidence of our partners and our funders and they've given us space to experiment, innovate, potentially fail. Now, it still happens we haven't failed, but we had the freedom to be ambitious in both cases because of those long standing relationships that are predicated on the fact that innovation requires trust and it requires sustained support. The fourth thing I think we've learned, partnerships and relationships are absolutely essential, but they aren't, but no one pays for them, despite the fact that they aren't free. So our emergencies grant programme, we were able to deliver through partnerships that had already been established from our existing children's communities, where we brought together local public services and other partners to try and create a different early learning environment for children in local areas. Those relationships and the social capital was so strong and we were so dependent on it when we suddenly had to pivot and deliver something very different. But who pays for networking? Who pays for connective tissue? Who pays for the development of social capital? And the fifth thing I think we've learned in this uh, builds very much on Victor's point. My word, it really matters who is in the room when decisions are taken about resource allocation and about policy preferences. So just two examples that relate in particular to children that have been, I think, enormously illuminating about why it matters who's in the room. Very early in the pandemic, government released guidance on whether you could go to your second home, which 
is not an issue that was exercising, I would suggest, the majority of the public about which of their homes they might spend the first lockdown in, when in fact we had tons of children trapped, crawling the walls in tiny overcrowded flats without any recourse to data or devices and often doing their homework or arts and crafts on the end of a bed which was the new makeshift classroom. So that tells you quite a lot about who was influencing and what was influencing government decision making. The second example, and this is where I'll leave you, is James Kirkup of the Social Market Foundation said, what does it tell us about a country that it opens pubs and hairdressers before it reopens schools? What does that tell you about whose priorities really count? And we at Save the Children have found over the course of this pandemic, unfortunately, children's rights, interests and perspectives have not been at the top of anyone's decision making list beyond the people who are paid professionally or through their volunteering thinking about children all the time. But it really, really, really matters if we're going to get public service design right, that all the constituencies that are touched by public service are included and crucially listened to and heard when we're doing redesign. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm now going to ask uh, panelists a few questions and um, thank you to those watching who've already submitted questions keep them coming in and I'll come around to those questions um, in a moment. Um, Chris uh, to you first you uh, talked about the framework that you've developed to identify the building blocks for scaling can you perhaps give a practical example of something you've done to add to life a little more? Yeah sure um um, so, um, let's think. Uh, so, uh, social finance has worked in around the issue of domestic abuse for the past uh, six years or so, in particular on the role of the perpetrator. Uh, we helped set up something called the Drive Programme in partnership with some sector organisations and some funders, uh, because there was very little focus on anyone on the on the role of the perpetrator. Um, and, and Drive is an intervention that challenges perpetrators and then supports behaviour change. It's proven very successful. Uh, we wanted to scale its its positive impact um, and the impact it can have on on victims and survivors in particular. Um, so for us, the building blocks that we, we identified there uh, were that it needed to have uh, widespread uh, safe practice beyond just our existing delivery partners capacity. Uh, we knew it needed um, to, to embed uh, change in the system and that, that meant in particular in statutory money flows and regulation. Uh, and also we knew that there's something about a, a new narrative was needed. Um, so we all stop asking the question, why doesn't she leave? And instead, why say, why doesn't he stop? Um, so when we came to thinking about scale strategies there, rather than just thinking how do we grow the programme that is Drive, uh, our strategies have been focused on things like um, you know, how, do you, how do you capture and share the best practice and build a, an independent, rigorously evaluated evidence base? You know, how can we work collaboratively with national and local officials uh, on the structures needed um, for widespread delivery? Uh, and that includes coaching, capacity building the workforce, for example, uh, in both statutory and voluntary sectors. Uh, and also we did a lot of work around dialogue and, and how you build a shared voice uh, around around the, the kind of non-governmental um, side of things. Uh, and, and coming back to that point about partnerships, you know, the whole thing has been been built on a really strong emphasis on collaborative partnership working both with government and, and with the voluntary sector and, and between the two. Um, you know, working working together to try and drive uh, that kind of wider program of change, but also um, in the middle of all that, that point about um, narrative that I, I talked about before, uh, we've worked hard on how can you create really simple narratives that can be picked up by politicians, by the media, by campaigners, by, by voluntary sector organisations. So I guess trying, trying to bring that kind of framework of, of building blocks through to strategies, through to, to kind of collaboration and, and narratives. Uh, lots to do ahead of that work, but that, well, that work meant kind of a perpetrator 
the kind of perfect focus in the sector has gone from being quite niche and not really talked about to being a, a real central plank of government strategy and funding now uh, with widespread acknowledgement that that, um, that you know, there is an important role that focusing on the perpetrator can play. So that's kind of how we use, use that framework and practice. Thank you. Um, Lord Abdullah, you said that um, local organisations are best placed to innovate and I wanted to ask to what extent changes made during the crisis to the NHS at a national level have enabled that. So I'm thinking about, for example, changing hospital funding from largely payment by activity to block payments, uh, reduction in administrative burdens such as reviews, data collections and inspections, the kind of national encouragement of data sharing. To what extent has that enabled innovation and how much of that can be kept when some of that kind of business as usual returned or has already returned in some cases? Well, first of all, I think a lot of that, um, a lot of those innovation, well, not the not innovations, actually, the, they've come out of requests from my members um, made to NHS EI to uh, change the burden of administration upon on, on, uh, on the hospitals. But the first thing to say is that, you know, the NHS actually is a very good example of, ch of change at scale, right? Because the apocryphal story was that it was started in a village in, in uh, North Wales. Um, Tredegar and Nybevan came down to, to uh, Tredegar to have a look at what uh, what they were doing there. Well, I was thinking about um, uh, health service, you know, his, his famous point about you no know, civilised society, you know, a society cannot be civilised if someone in pain uh, can't afford to get, um, can't, go for, can't afford to get health care. And he saw what they were doing, what they were doing, and then used his, his power and his levers uh, to spread it, but it started locally. It wasn't started in Whitehall and it spread locally, it spread because, you know, the, the, the idea, the, the language um, was it was able to shift. But back to your point, um, a number of things have happened during the the the, uh, the crisis. As I mentioned, um, there has been a, a change in the way um, acute trusts operate. But one of the big changes in the way that they've operated is to actually build more partnerships with other bodies in local communities, uh, primary care, community services, uh, for instance. Um, and uh, during this time, we've also been working through uh, the, 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 the changes that have actually been occurring um, at place level in places like Manchester and West Yorkshire, where they're building these kind of collaborative and system practices um, in order to deliver population health. And it's those things that have actually helped the NHS um, uh, survive, actually, and pull the nation through this crisis. And those things that have actually been uh, being, uh, being uh, supported in some ways, and you know, we can debate the merits or not of the white paper, but the white paper is, is about embedding as many of those things as possible um, so they become sustainable. So uh, I think actually it's a dynamic between what's happened locally and what needs to happen uh, what needs to happen man, um, nationally and actually i'm reasonably optimistic that we can move towards um, uh, a health service which is not about acute trusts hospitals on on their own as isolated you know the old image of nurses bouncing on beds that's not the nhs that's a part of the nhs the nhs is a system and in order for you to get this kind of health care that you need that system needs to work together so that you get positive value transfer, i.e. you don't have to go from post to pillar and pillar to post to get what you need. And that's even more important if you happen to live in a place like Wakefield or the poorer parts of Newcastle. Thank you. Henry, I'm going to come to you next. Um, 
Chris talked about kind of partnerships being a kind of fundamental part of scaling and you spoke about the importance of economies of collaboration uh, and that it does work differently in a crisis. I wonder if there are, if you talk about if there are any practical things that central government can do to support economies of collaboration at a kind of local or regional level other than just getting out of the way. Well, th there is there is an argument that in some areas uh, uh, getting out of the way is uh, is the right thing to do, but I think the reality is, and you know, coming at this with with due humility, I'm not arguing that everything great happens at a local level and everything bad happens at a national level. I think we need a sensible dialogue about about how collaboration best happens and where um, service delivery and where scale is best applied. So to give you a great counterexample. I think probably the way to intensify employment support over the next six months as we come out of uh, COVID is not to paraphrase an Institute for Government report that was done with Collaborate 10 years ago to uh, rehash the work programme and get into a, a process where we're thinking about enormous prime and subcontracts at scale to be able to deliver outcomes that are fundamentally about the extent to which employers, individuals, local agencies collaborate at a, at a town or city or, or village level. So I think there is a, there's almost a passive and an active bit of this. The passive bit is that we understand, as Victor said, that uh, not everything is about taking and scaling and delivering nationally. Success doesn't have to mean it happens in the same way everywhere. Um, and the active bit is let's look at bits of the system where what is happening at a national level or where government policy actively mitigates against some of the collaboration that we're going to need to see. But but what I'm arguing is not, you know, locals, the goodies and centrals, the baddies. I absolutely think you need a mixed economy. And Victor's example about how the NHS has developed from great local practice to being something that the nation celebrates as a system and not just a set of institutions and service delivery is 100% the, the journey that we need to go on. I, I would say there is an opportunity in the the, the thing that's become very, very obvious through the pandemic, which is the relationship between health and the economy, public services and the economy. So that's always been the case. You know, you look at the gradient of health and wealth anywhere in the country, uh, you'll see a, a, a correlation in regions like mine. Absolutely, the key to better health outcomes is for people to have jobs and a career and in-work progression. And definitely the two things go together. There are examples where of where central government could encourage a public health approach to certain issues that are potentially not um, strictly public health in how they present. So what do I mean by that? If you look at violence reduction units, for example, the presenting problem that they are there to address is knife crime in cities. I paraphrase, that's not all of it, but that, that is. Uh, through a public health lens, you start seeing that as an issue that's about population and public health. You can find a route in that's more collaborative and that, that recognises there are complex determinants. You could say the same thing about what's going to drive uh, jobs and wealth and productivity in the economy after COVID. That is a public health issue. Public confidence on our high streets is a public health issue. Those That connection is more obvious now than it's ever been. And I think it, central government, I think, is very capable of uh, incentivising or de-incentivising that kind of collaborative practice. And I think that's that's that they've, 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 we've got to find a really thoughtful response over the next few months. Otherwise, some of the good local practice and relationships that have been built locally will, will be undermined by service delivery models that don't take that relationship into account. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Victor, I think you come in there. Come in. Well, I was just going to support what Henry was saying, really. I think 
there's something about it's not a case of government getting out of the way but i do think government could be better system leaders and and in, in order to be a good system leader it needs to ask questions of itself and ask questions of the system and then provide the means for which answers can be derived rather than providing the answer without sometimes even asking the question so one of the things that it needs to look at is why in some areas where we have a social infrastructure of you know education um, health uh, employment, housing. There's some parts of that those communities, black black people, for instance, or black and minority ethnic groups, um, uh, 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 don't seem to benefit from that investment, and they've never benefited. That's a, a valid question that the government could be asking in those places of need, and encouraging around infrastructure to experiment with with some with with answers, and 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 some of those answers will be the right ones. And those are the ones that will go to scale. And there's something weird about public services, which makes it akin to the private sector. You know, good answers tend to scale. Bad answers tend to fail. Thank you. Kirsty, I'm going to come to you for a final question before I um, go to the um, audience questions. There's been quite a lot of discussion about uh, narrative, the importance of building one, and I suppose the, the, the lack of one about what recovery should look like and how it should be different. I know you've worked on sort of multiple national and international campaigns, and I wondered if you could say a bit about how you build a consistent narrative across multiple organisations. This is a great question. Um, so I'm involved in a collaboration at the moment called Crack the Crisis, which brings together over 70 organisations and a few lessons I've learned there about how you get everyone to um, share and shape a common story is first of all, you need to give the strategic sense making phase time to breathe. So if you're jumping straight into what action are we going to do together? If people don't know why they are together, you'll pretty quickly find people straining at the leash. And for me, a big watch out, a big sign that something's gone wrong is when people say, I've got a red line. Like for me, that's always a terrible sign that we are playing model United Nations and not social justice movement building. Like we don't negotiate with one another, we talk to one another and work out why do you want the story told that way versus the way I want it told. So we talk about a few things in Crack the Crisis. One is a culture of encounter. So how do you create spaces for people to encounter one another hear one another and listen to one another, not simply to work together. So jumping too fast to action will often slow you down, in my experience, in the long run. The second thing we've really found is if you're telling a story that's partly about policy change and partly about substantive uh, practice changes that you'd want to see in the world, we've often found that fights about policy are really fights about politics in disguise. So people aren't really saying, I have a very hotly contested thought about whether this policy instrument or that policy instrument is superior. What they're often really saying is, I have a different account than you do about my comfort levels with proximity to power. So again, creating the space for people to say, my account of power, my sense of my own agency, and my willingness to be proximate to power is as follows, where is yours at? So. My kind of big takeaway from all the collaborative ventures I've been involved in for 20 years, but particularly my big learning from Crack the Crises over the last six months is oftentimes when you're orienting towards action, it's because you're skipping the deeper stage that actually makes all the action both uh, much more sustainable and a joy. Like all of these things will follow if you get the strategic alignment bit right, actually the operational alignment is super quick and super simple and actually as the actively joyful if you try to skip that strategic sense making phase 
my experience is you either uh, slow down massively in the long run or fracture massively in the long run. But going back to one of my earlier points, it's incredibly difficult to get funders to sit with that discomfort of sense making because entirely properly people say, what are you collaborating on? What is the outcome of the collaboration? And when will I be able to see and measure the outcome of the collaboration? And part of the point of true collaboration is you won't know that until you start it. So getting everyone comfortable with actually moving. So um, what Julia did in her uh, sort of great survey of civil society, what she talked about was moving at the speed of trust. And that is just not uh, a thing with which lots of people in the ecosystem are comfortable. But I think if we want sustainable results and we actually want them fast, then having that that set up sense making phase is absolutely crucial and simply can't get skipped. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to come to Chris uh, quickly and then move to a question. Just to reinforce what Kirsty was saying, I, I think um, in, in our experience that, that that building of trust is, is fundamental and, and it's absolutely right, it's the bit that doesn't get funded. Um, but also I'd also say it's so, so it's, it's the challenge being that funding always comes with the solution and not with the, the process of getting to the solution. Uh, hence people rush to the solution in order to, 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 to move forward. Uh, but I'd also say it's actually beyond that as well. And one of the things we, we found, and, and going back to the example I shared a minute ago of, of the, uh, the DRIVE programme and our work in domestic abuse, it, it's, it's been a successful programme, um, not just because there was good collaboration and, and, and kind of thoughtful kind of trust building in the early stages where, where there was quite a lot of contention around, you know, should we work in the perpetrator space and, and you know, what should we do? But actually the, the ongoing commitment to collaboration uh, and kind of you know kind of proper dialogue at a senior level between kind of all parties you know, ongoingly throughout the life of that program you know it's that ongoing kind of investment in collaboration and dialogue uh, is as important as it is at the beginning and often people think you know you, you do the dialogue you get somewhere you build a thing and off you go but actually there's something about kind of how can you can you you know when, when, when um uh, when, when Henry was talking about a kind of economies of collaboration, uh, it's an ongoing and continual process that needs investment, and that's the bit that, that is really challenging. And, and we need to find ways of, of, of getting funding into that on an ongoing basis, not just a one-off in order to build a thing. It, it's actually a, it's valuable in, in and of itself, and that's that's the missing piece for me. Thank you. Well, we've all talked about um, funding um, quite a lot, um, so I'm going to move to the first question. So a question is saying, um, how are we going to pay for all of this? Uh, they give the example of their local Conservative candidate for Surrey County Council who wants more to spend on the elderly, more building of citizen housing, more help for the disabled, uh, but they don't have the money uh, or the homes for more carers and their families. So how do we pay for all of this? Victor, I might come to you first, um, just because you said we need easier access to funding, uh, but then and uh, the NHS has the most funding of public services, though, you know, still not enough to uh, probably meet the, the growth in demand. And then anyone else who wants to come in, let me know. Well, yeah, I mean, it's quite, it's always comes to, uh, down to funding in, in the end. And I have to say, you know, um, the NHS Confed has, have just sent a letter to the Prime Minister today saying that the NHS and social care system is underfunded and is understaffed so the, ultimately the government has to make priorities about about where it spends it where it spends its money and we need to put pressure on them to do that I mean I'm, I'm all for volunteering I think it's a wonderful thing the only problem with it is that it does rely on kindness and kindness isn't evenly distributed which is why we have public services in the first place so I just think we need you know that we I'm not going to shy away from the fact that we need we need more funding um, in, into many services. However, and I think this is an important point, it's not just about the money. Um, uh, you, we need to change the way in which we deliver services. So if you look at some of the things that are happening in health at the moment, 
Um, again, the, com the NHS Confederation estimate that we've got a waiting list of, what, 4.6 million as a, as a conservative estimate. That's a massive, massive challenge. Just increasing, just demanding more productivity uh, from uh, acute hospitals or any other system in the health, or mental health trust for that matter, isn't going to cut it. And what I'm seeing when I talk to my members um, in places like Newcastle, actually, and as well as the as well as uh, the southeast, is that you're seeing innovation. Uh, we're seeing different ways of managing illness, disease, to reduce demand in the community, preventative, and actually having a closer relationship with um, patient citizens, so that we're understanding what's important to them, and that's starting to have the impact and saving saving um, uh, time, money, pain and improving uh, outcomes. So there's some, there's some of these things which, which are about changing the way in which we in changing the way in which we do things. But I think some, some of it is about, you know, money. I mean, social care is on its knees. It needs reform and it needs more money. And there's no there's no getting away from that. Doesn't matter whether you're a conservative council in your example, Labour, Lib Dem or any colour in between. Ultimately, there are some services uh, that need more money. Thank you. Henry, do you want to come in? To, to add briefly to the uh, comments Victor's made, uh, there's a set of choices, of course, about tax and spending and the relative balance in the economy. I would emphasise two things through a devolution lens. The first being that there is a real question about how you shift the money that's already in the system and what it does. So that is why so many combined authorities, cities, local authorities will be emphasising prevention now that the money in the system that is there to support public services largely goes towards treating the symptoms of either ill health or things that go wrong, if you like. And so shifting that balance is absolutely about trying to have an account of how you support prevention. So the recapitalization of public services has to prioritize prevention, from my view. The second point I would make is related to one I made earlier about the relationship between the economy and public services. There are two sides of the same coin. You cannot have a sustainable system of funding for public services without supporting more sustainable forms of growth within and across the UK more broadly. The whole point of devolution is about bringing those conversations together so you can find ways to not only spend money in different ways in different parts of the country, but to generate wealth and recycle that in different places, in different ways. So that there, there is a kind of growth and public services conversation that needs to be joined up in all of this, which I think absolutely is not just the preserve of those of us in the regions, but it's something that the Treasury is actively thinking about uh, at the moment uh, in terms of supporting COVID recovery. Thank you, Chris. I've got a question for you here. We've, we've talked a bit about uh, not always knowing at the beginning um, what's going to work and what isn't. We've got a question here saying, how good are we at ex post evaluation and understanding what changes have been successful in public services? I think it's very easy to, to, to well, it, it's easy to look back and and then and then kind of uh, critique. And I think I think that the question for me when we're when we are thinking of of kind of scaling is to just be clear on what what it is you're aiming for. I think um, uh, you know um, if you're not clear on, on the hypothesis you're driving towards, you, you've got no way of actually kind of testing whether you've got any any chance of being successful here in the here and now. I think if you look back in history and you try and look and see kind of what's worked in the past. Uh, you, you will you will end up uh, kind of expertly kind of rationalising. I think what what goes on, but I I think for us when, as practitioners trying to think about scaling, you know, I think our, our main thing is trying to to be clear now on on kind of what it is the path we're trying to take and and, and setting out. Um, 
uh, you know, ways of testing that as you, as you go. Uh, and this, is, I think, is often a challenge when, when, when we talk to people who think about, you know, trying to shift the system or, or kind of put in place long-term big structural changes. They talk really vaguely about, about it and, th and they don't really know what they mean by, by systems change and stuff. And I think for us, it's about uh, uh, trying to understand um, you know, what, is, what, is, what does it actually mean when you say you want to, to shift something or, or, um, or find a, a way to, to embed change in a system? You, you've got to bring that to, to something that's, that's more kind of more, more tangible and only then can you start to, to evaluate against it. Uh, when you look back in the past, I think of, often people weren't that clear and you, you end up kind of going around in circles and you try and look and see what's, um, what, uh, what's happened. Uh, Victor, do you want to come in? I, I just, yeah, to be honest, I just don't think we're very good at evaluate. <laughs> basically and we don't understand the different forms of it i mean and we don't build it into the to what we finance uh how we finance um services to the public whether they're delivered by and and therefore we don't learn and we, and we have a tendency to repeat the same mistakes over and over again and i've been involved in a number of um inquiries into things like you know the police response to mental health and it and it kills people literally kill people because we don't learn um from the past and we don't evaluate so you know, we need to understand, you know, formative evaluation, process evaluation, um, uh, summative evaluation, as, but we need to build it in in the way we deliver things. And, you know, with my, with my private sector hat on, when, when you de deliver a new service, you evaluate as you roll out, you learn as you, as, you, as you push the service out and you use that learning to make sometimes small changes, sometimes massive changes in, in the next iterative process. And we're not as flexible as we as we could be in doing that. And to Henry's point about prevention, totally agree with it. And 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 preventative services and that 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 narrative requires evaluation in order that you actually understand how preventative something is, and more importantly, to whom. Thank you. Um, moving on to the next question. This one is from uh, Norman for uh, Lord Adderborough and it asks, uh, how do you see the move to integrated care systems and the duty to collaboration uh, in those changes? Uh, and then linking that to what Kirsty said about who pays for collaboration. Uh, Victor, I might, I might come to you first uh, with your okay. HS Federation. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think um, with the foot, well, not, with, with, we've taken a few strong steps in the direction of integration. And I talked about, I kind of referenced this when I was talking about population health. Um, in a sense, it's very simple. There are only three challenges, I think, facing healthcare systems in this country. The first is, is equity. And what I mean by that is that a woman in Barking and Dagenham has an active life expectancy of 55 in Richmond upon Thames, or indeed in that very nice ivory tower behind you, the active life expectancy is probably over 70, active life expectancy, actually, the time at which your body starts to break down. Now, that is unacceptable. It's just unacceptable. The second challenge is, is access. Now, in order to access services, um, uh, that's about design and commissioning. And that's where the integration point comes in, because in order to deliver services that, that actually move the, that poor woman in Barking and Dagenham up the scale, you need services that are one, as near as damn it, as near as possible, one-stop shops that provide an integrated response. Because we know that for every change, every step that woman changed between services, she's going to get worse and it's going to be more expensive and we're going to increase the impact of the inverse care law on that, on that woman. And, and so it's, so it's equity, it's access, 
and then it's digital and, and digital has to serve the first two otherwise why aren't you using it so the int the in integration is built into the to the white paper it, it is a, a single pillar of population health the funding that should come through government through nhs ei and into integrated care systems is designed to encourage that in that integration and the funding of the partner the, the encouragement of the two major um, bodies in ICSs. I don't want to get into the detail of it, but the the the, the health body and the social care body is, is about actually creating relationships between the two. You can't legislate for relationships, and I think that's a bad thing to, to try. But you can hold hold institutions severally responsible for the the products of their partnership and encourage. Um, uh, the development of those relationships in the interest of the population. That's the intention behind integrated healthcare, and that's the in intention behind many of the elements in, in the white paper. We, I'm not saying all of it's ideal, but we're moving in the right direction. And furthermore, there are seeds out there that you can point at, like what's happening in, in, part, in Manchester and uh, West Yorkshire um, uh, and uh, places around Wigan that would indicate that we're onto something that might well, um, as to use the current language, scale and have impact. Kirsten, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, just two points briefly, if I may. So the first is, I think the, um, the sort of attribution wars really counteract um, all, a suite of other incentives which may be helping us here, but the kind of the drive to attribute a change purely to your own activity is so strong and so embedded and so incentivised. And it's incentivised not just by funders, it's incentivised by voters. So it's not unreasonable that some of our uh, political masters and public services will be seeking to say that it was one um, discrete intervention that made the difference. So if we want to end the attribution wars, that that won't be unilateral disarmament. We will all have to do that simultaneously. And the second thing I might say is it, these kind of um, formalised commissioning incentives, I think, can help crowd in collaboration amongst people who've been formally commissioned, what it doesn't help us do is deal with those challenges where we need lots of people to opt in and give discretionary effort. So if I give just one example of that, this summer, public services are thinking through how can we treat children like little robots and keep them trapped in a classroom and cram some more things into them to help them catch up. And children just aren't wired like that. You can't just say it's a unit cost of learning and we'll shove them in a classroom and somehow catch up will occur. Children need time to play, to catch up with their friends, to do their um, emotional and mental health development as much as anything. So if we're thinking about what would a summer of play look like for children, of course uh, local and central government will be part of that, but crucially you need everyone who runs a soft play centre in the private sector to think about how to make that accessible. You need everyone who runs an ice cream van to think about how they might make ice cream available to all kids like you need lots of people to give discretionary effort if you really want to have genuine collaboration it goes beyond this kind of forced contractual commissioning based kind of joint work I, and I don't think we've yeah. cracked that ability to create movements yet. Yeah. I just want to say something I know your question was about health but I just want to back up something that Kirsty said I think one of the crying shames of the post pandemic and the is the opportunity that we could have had to rethink education and in, in rethink childhood in this country. And it actually breaks my heart to see uh, the sort of, you know, we've gone through a terrible crisis that has questioned 
the nature of the exam culture. It's questioned the nature of learning. It's questioned what schools are for and what communities are for. And yet we're going back to something that actually doesn't work for many kids in many places. And by the way, while some kids have got have had access to free computers, they haven't had access to the free Wi-Fi and the free data that you need um, to use them. And by the way, not all kids have had access to to the free computers. So it's okay to say we've given out a million free computers. Unfortunately, there's 15 million kids that need need them. So it, there's something missing, I think, in, in the sort of blase um, assumption that education, and it, it really does break my heart that we, that we haven't used this crisis to rethink um, what we do with education, because I think many kids will suffer as a direct result. And that's a crying shame. Thank you. I think we've probably got time for one more question. I'm going to direct this one to Chris initially. Uh, so question here, to what extent are innovations already available off the shelf? Uh, they give the example of data sharing rather than needing to self-innovate, which can be more time consuming and more expensive. I mean, in our experience, that there are often really good Deep thinking, uh, you know, available out there. Whenever we start working a new a new social issue, the first thing we do is is, is kind of do do deep listening across uh, across you know uh, academic academia, voluntary sector, you know, local government, uh, central government, uh, and often we find actually it isn't a case of, of reinventing the wheel with new ideas. It's about just bringing these insights together and bringing the partnerships together. So, so I absolutely um, don't, don't think it's it's about you know um, in, innovation is rarely uh, funding clever people to sit in a room and come up with with, with brand new ideas. It's nearly always uh, how do you bring people together uh, to unlock the, the the latent potential that's already there. Um, and actually, often that's actually there in our communities and in, in kind of a local local settings. Um, so, so when it comes to to innovation, you know, increasingly we're finding our work is looking a lot like. Kind of you know read deep co-production how we can work closely with communities uh, and, and bring their voice to the fore and it goes back to that point victor started with actually you know that there are deep inequalities out there and actually when, when you when you empower and shift power from central to local to community you know you really do um start to unlock um, the potential that's there uh, now that needs needs commitment and it needs needs uh, a willingness to shift power um, but when you do that, you, you start to start to get close to what we think the heart of innovation is, which is really actually just putting putting the people um, with lived experience at the front and centre of policy making and ideas, uh, and, that, and that isn't uh, innovation with 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 clever consultancies or or, uh, or central government policy making. It is about uh, how to empower those that that, um, that can make a, make a difference. Thank you. I think that is a suitable point to end on. So with that, I'm going to bring the discussion to a close. Uh, for those who haven't yet had a chance, please do peruse Social Finance's report, Building Routes to Scale and their case study series. I'd also obviously uh, recommend the Institute for Government's Performance Tracker report, uh, which assess changes made to public services uh, in response to the pandemic. And finally, just to thank our four speakers for their brilliant contribution and to thank all those who've watched today or listened back later on SoundCloud or YouTube.